for my father last week. We left from here and went down there. And, uh, when I got there, I got a medical book that my folks had and got it down to see about the other medication he was taking. And uh, I had looked, up it, looked it up before and couldn't find any symptoms of it, but uh, was able to uh, look under her hallucinatory drugs, and uh, it was there. So we took him off of that. He was taking four of those a day, and we cut him back to one a day. Talked with my mom last night, and she said he's sleeping every night. She, he's sleeping all night long, not hallucinating. Uh, so it really is a relief to, to have that. He was still hallucinating when we left Sunday, but I was able to reason with him about it, and he could talk about it. And there had been a change from, from Thursday night till, till Sunday. But my mom said since we left... Uh, that may have had something to do with it. He's quit hallucinating altogether. <laughs> so we do appreciate your prayers and that. And I hope all of you were able to meet Bill and Barb Riley from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, they came out on Monday, and we've had them in Bible study Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and now Thursday night. So, uh, we uh, are enjoying fellowshipping with them. I had the privilege of going back to South Dakota nine months ago, day before yesterday, and officiating at their wedding. And uh, so we're enjoying having them out here. They're newlyweds. All right, tonight we want to begin with the second chapter of the book of Revelation. You'll open your Bibles to that, and if I can find mine. We uh, last time looked at uh, some basics relative to the uh, book of Revelation and an overview kind of an outline of where we were going to be going and what we were going to be covering uh, in our study. And I trust that uh, you've got that all memorized and understand exactly the breakdown now of the book of Revelation. But probably that's not the case. At least it's not with me. And so we'll just look at it uh, in a little closer detail. Beginning tonight with the second and third chapters, which in the outline that we presented last week, we said uh, portrayed a pro prophetic panorama of the history of the church, giving a uh, general overview. And while we look at the letters that are written to each of the churches, we would need to recognize that they were written to literal churches. And the problems, uh, the commendation, the, the critical review that is found in each of the letters uh, was pertinent to that particular church at the time in which it was written in 96 A.D., but that the scope of the two chapters goes far beyond the literal churches. And there is the admonition in each of the letters, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And the seven churches were not the only seven churches in that area, but they were seven churches that were selected by the Lord Jesus Christ in presenting this panorama. We gave a, a breakdown on that last time, and... Tonight, as we look at it, we want to get into the passage itself, having looked at the first chapter last week, and at that rate, we only need about 22 more weeks, and we'll be able to get through it. So we don't intend to spend uh, time dealing with every chapter and every verse, but trying to give an overview in some of that. In the first chapter, we had a basic introduction concerning uh, the background and the author and all that was presented. Uh, in that, we had also an identification uh, of uh, seven lampstands and seven stars. 
We saw the stars were the angels to the churches. We saw the lampstands were the churches themselves. We also had a description in that first chapter of the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared uh, in the Revelation to the Apostle John. And in each of the letters, we will go back uh, to some of the characteristics that were portrayed uh, in that first chapter. Beginning then with verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'll read down through this uh, first church, and then we'll look at some of the things that are, are covered in it, and then we'll move to the second church. Under the angel of the church at Ephesus, write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they were apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove the candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the Apostle John had been given the instruction to uh, take up pen and paper and to write letters to these seven churches and the dictation of the first letter by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John is to be addressed to the church at Ephesus. In the outline that you have for our study tonight, you'll find that we have listed those churches uh, in order and uh, also uh, along with the list of the churches have again included, uh, I believe it was in the outline last time too, but have again included the uh, area of time that is represented uh, perfectly by that literal church uh, at that particular point in 96 AD. We see that Ephesus represents the church that began on the day of Pentecost and uh, went up till about 160 AD. Uh, I've put a note down at the bottom of this list that some of these are educated estimates. Uh, we can't be conclusive in some of the dates. Some of them we can because of the historical significance of events that occurred, but some of them uh, are a little uh, rougher in our estimation. And Ephesus, that the word Ephesus itself means desired one. Desired one. It represents the church of the first century then, from that period of time from about 30 A.D. to 169 A.D. The city of Ephesus was a major seaport at the time in which this letter was addressed. It had had some very notable pastors. The Apostle Paul had pastored there. Timothy had served as its pastor. Matter of fact, it is while Timothy was pastor of the church at Ephesus uh, that we have the letters of First and Second Timothy written by Paul to Timothy. They had some unusual problems in the church at Ephesus and some of the ladies were given 
Timothy some problems and uh, he had developed ulcers or stomach problems from the situation and uh, Paul had to uh, encourage him uh, in the work while he was pastoring there. And then the Apostle John had pastored that church. If we were to look at these churches in a, uh, on a map, we would see them in a geographical order uh, as we move from one to the other, forming a circle uh, from Ephesus uh, and then to Smyrna and to Pergamos and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and back to Laodicea. And then the next move up would have been again to Ephesus. And so the, the letter begins, or the letter writing begins with an address to a letter of the church at Ephesus, a city of a major seaport. And in the introduction to that letter, uh, some of the characteristics of Christ that were identified in chapter 1 are again brought out. The one that holds the seven stars in his right hand. A reminder that the angels to the churches are held in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may remember that we said the word angel is transliterated from the Greek to the English, meaning the Greek word was brought, angelos, was brought into the English language with English spelling and pronunciation. They translated it, instead of transliterating it, had they given it a, a corresponding English meaning, they would have translated it messenger, because the word angelos means messenger. There are some who believe that these are uh, angelic heavenly angels, uh, angelic beings created angels that were uh, charged with the responsibility of each of these churches. But most fundamental scholars believe that these, uh, this term angel refers to the pastors. Now some of you uh, may not have had uh, such uh, lovely pastors always in your life as you do right now and uh, you might question them being called angels. But uh, nevertheless, that's the term. It, it's used of men as well as of the created uh, heavenly beings. And uh, it's my uh, interpretation that in this context it is addressed to the pastors of those churches. They're being held in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he walks among the seven candlesticks, I think it's fitting that we should remember that the churches are represented in uh, this account by candlesticks. Actually, the, the Greek term is lampstand. That it's not talking about a, a, the lamp itself, but a lampstand. As we study the New Testament especially, uh, we find that uh, in the teaching of Jesus, when he first began his ministry on the earth, uh, in the... Uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said, I am the light of the world. And then in just uh, a few paragraphs of his sermon, he said, Ye are the light of the world. And then a little later, he tied it together when he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We become the light of the world by having him indwell us as believers. For the moment we receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior, he moves into our life and indwells us along with the Holy Spirit. And His residing in our life causes us to be able to reflect the light that He is in us through our actions and our attitudes. I have illustrated this on a number of occasions with a kerosene lamp. The kerosene lamp uh, has many similitudes uh, to our own uh, ministry of reflecting Christ. 
I've also uh, used the illustration of the uh, beacon or the, the searchlight that shines out sea. I lived in, uh, over on the coast, lived in Salinas for a number of years before we moved to Monterey, and I had observed from Salinas some 19 miles away Point Lomo uh, Lighthouse. Uh, one of my eighth grade class made a trip up there, and I was anxious to see that tremendous light that could shine so far away and be seen so brightly so far away. When I saw that light, I was really disappointed because the, the, the flame was no taller than that, just a matter of inches tall. And I was about to ask the, the innkeeper how in the world that light could be seen so far away when one of the boys in the class reached up to touch a reflector that was behind the light. And when he reached up to touch it, I thought the innkeeper was going to take his head off as well as his arm. Don't touch that, he yelled. He said, I've spent hours polishing that. He said, you may wonder how such a small light is able to be seen so far away. The secret is in that reflector. That reflector multiplied that light again and again and again. And we are really to reflect then the Lord Jesus Christ who lives in us, who is the light of the world, so that we can then, in essence, become the light of the world. Kerosene lamp, uh, the base of the lamp is uh, made of glass. The elements of our body and the elements of that glass are basically the same. If you were to send a, a piece of your fingernail and a strand, uh, a strand of your hair and a uh, tissue from your skin, uh, the base of, of that glass lamp into a laboratory, you'd find the same basic elements were in them. Uh, the base of the lamp is created with a void in it. It's created for a purpose, and so that purpose necessitates a void to be there. That void is to contain the oil. Oil is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, in a symbolic way of the Holy Spirit. And we are designed by God for a purpose. And we are designed with a void in our life, and that void can only be filled by the Spirit of the living God as He comes into our life at the moment of salvation. The burner on the old kerosene or coal oil lamp uh, ha is made of brass. Brass is used throughout the Bible as a symbol of judgment. And that burner represents uh, our volition, our, our decider, where we make judgments. The wick that extends in that burner goes down into the oil. And as long as the wick is in the oil, the flame burns brightly. Take the wick up out of the oil, and soon there's no light in it any longer uh, from that lamp. Uh, that wick represents our uh, yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, to His control in our lives. As a matter of fact, the word uh, in Ephesians 5.18 where it says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, the word filled, pleurusthate, in the Greek means to be saturated to the point of control. And the emphasis is upon control. And then, of course, Jesus being the light of the world, when we receive Christ as our personal Savior, that light comes to indwell us, just as though you would strike a match and light that wick. Fire is also a symbol of judgment, and he was judged in our stead that others might be able to judge him by our actions and by our reflection. The chimney or the uh, globe of the lamp represents our personal actions, our, our attitudes and, and our actions, our conduct, uh, our personality as we magnify like that reflector did and reflect the, the light that is in us. And so the lampstand is simply the church. The believers in that church are the lamps that are on the lampstand. And in this passage, 
Jesus is seen as walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the churches. And there's a danger in these letters that the lampstand be removed, that the church itself be removed. And so we have a real responsibility to, to magnify Christ in our lives, in our actions, in our attitudes, uh, that we might be able to uh, reflect Him properly so that the lampstand might not be removed, but that we might be there. There's also, we can tie in with the responsibility of being involved in a local congregation. That's the lampstand. And uh, while we're individual lamps, we need to be on the lampstand. So He's identified as being the one that walks among the lampstands. And uh, in some instances, uh, since these letters were written, the lampstands have been removed. Uh, in the first century, uh, the criticism that is brought or the accusation that is brought against the church was that it had lost its first love. By 160 A.D., the fervency of that first love of the early church was really on the downhill decline. In 96 A.D., when John wrote this, they had already moved from the fervency of that honeymoon love that they had for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ is identified as the one walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He said, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and, thou hast, and how thou hast tried them which say the apostles, and are not. In the early church there were some who tried to take the role of apostle, and they were not, and they had tried them and found that they were liars. And how thou hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. The word fainted literally means to give up, throw in the towel. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Then he gives them some commendation. and In each of these letters, there is commendation. He says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Deeds of the Nicolaitans. Uh, one of the early deacons in the church had uh, decided to adopt some of his own philosophy uh, and uh, religious practice in a blend with Christianity one of the deacons by the name of Nicholas and he had started some real apostate uh, doctrine and was teaching that in the church he had taken it to Ephesus and they had soundly rejected him and sent him on his way and so the comment is made here that uh, they hate the deed of the Nicolaitans which God also which Lord Jesus Christ also hates the things that he had brought in was a form of Greek Gnosticism uh, which uh, the Greek Gnostics had two different types of invitation. Uh, they sought to appeal to those whose trend was toward do-goodism, who were ascetic, who were, who were by virtue of their nature were do-gooders. But they found that didn't appeal to all. And they said if you will, if you will become a do-gooder uh, and the epitome of that, the extreme of that, is to move into a monastery, to uh, give up uh, all the comforts and conveniences of life, uh, no more apple pie and uh, no more television, uh, no more bubble gum, just eat bird seed and contemplate infinity, and your spirit will get so fed up 
that it'll move up in the pleroma of heaven, and that's the, that's the goal of man. But because that didn't appeal to all, they came up with the other idea too now. Those of you that that, that doesn't appeal to, we've got a second stanza of the invitation. Uh, if you'll commit your life to drunkenness, to rightness, to wantness, to, to immorality, you can achieve the same purpose. You can drive the eon, uh, the spirit out of your body by that kind of activity and get your spirit up in the play Roma where it belongs and everything will be just fine. Well, Nicholas was one who approached it from the licentious or immoral viewpoint and he was saying the more uh, immoral we are, the greater God's grace is and the sooner we'll be with him and he was getting a lot of followers. Now, we find also later on there came to Ephesus another man by the name of Serenthus and he was teaching just the opposite. He was blending Greek Gnosticism but he was taking the ascetic viewpoint and was saying if you really want to, to make it with God you've got to, to give up all kinds of joy and all kinds of happiness and you've got to become emotional uh, in the sense of praise and adoration and you've got to focus in on him and, and took them off on another tangent and it's for that reason that John wrote the epistle of 1 John. So the, the church at Ephesus already experienced by the time John is writing had already experienced both of these teachers as they're coming in and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ points out that their, their sound attack against the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, uh, which he also uh, hated. I don't know if you have a problem with the word hate as it relates to God. The Bible says God loved Jacob and hated Esau. That causes some problems when we try to define hate uh, in our own uh, usage of the word today. See, when we use the word hate, we attach an emotion to it. The word hate, as it is used in, in the New Testament, uh, also in the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, is used to mean to disallow any claim that that individual has upon you. When God said that he hated Esau and he loved Jacob, he said, I am disallowing any claim that Esau has on me because uh, reject any claim that he might come with because Esau was apostate. Esau was not responsive to God. Esau wanted to do things his way. And so God would not recognize his claim but rejected his claim. That's, that's what the word hate means when we find it in the scripture. So he, he's saying, I disallow, I reject the teaching of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He's not talking about an emotion but he's talking about an act of rejection uh, that is there. And of course, if we're honest with ourselves and we hate something uh, emotionally, uh, we reject any claim that it might have to us and disallow that as well. And so without putting the point of emphasis on the rejection but putting it on emotion, uh, we have a difficult time understanding uh, the word hate as we find it in the Word of God. The Lord then identifies not only problem in the church at Ephesus, but he identifies a problem that was in the universal church uh, during the first century, through the time of the first century. 30 A.D. to 160 A.D., uh, the church had waned in its uh, love and commitment and sacrifice. Uh, it had become involved in a system of, 
of works. If you notice, works is emphasized in the passage twice. And when we get over uh, further in, in the letters, we'll, we'll see a reference again to that uh, as uh, they were uh, still doing the work, but the, the personal uh, relationship with God and communion with God uh, and love, uh, self-sacrificial love for God was waning. There are four different Greek words for love, three of which are found in the Bible. The word agape that we are so familiar with is defined as a self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving and keeps on loving regardless of response. And men, that's the kind of love that God has commanded us to have for our wives. A self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving and keeps on loving regardless of the response. I find it interesting that in the Bible nowhere is the woman commanded to love her husband. The woman was not designed to be the initiator of that self-sacrificial love. Now in the epistles of Peter and of James, uh, excuse me, Peter and Titus, uh, we have some instruction uh, that uh, Peter is giving to the churches and that Paul gives Titus for the, the mature, spiritually mature women in the church to teach the younger women how to love their husbands. But the word is not agape. The word is phileo, which is a responsive love. It's a love that is dependent upon response. It is a love that, that loves because of the response. And it continues because of the response that it gets. Then there is the word stergen. It's only used with the negative in the New Testament. And it is translated natural affection. Translated without natural affection because it's used with the negative. It's the type of protective love a mother has for her offspring. Uh, seen both in animals and at one time was seen in human beings. Well, it still is, isn't it, to a degree. We're seeing uh, that trampled underfoot such today that some mothers are without any natural affection. A mother can give birth to a child and throw it in the garbage can and walk off and leave it. Uh, a woman that can, can leave her children uh, and abandon them doesn't have that natural productive love, protective love that is found uh, in nature. Then there is the Greek word eros that is not used in scripture that talks about erotic love that has its seat in the passions. Uh, but in scripture we have those three in the reference to uh, the love that they have lost here, their first love. It is that uh, agape love. They had uh, no longer agapowing the verbal form of that. They were, they were no longer self-sacrificially loving God. And they have been <coughs> kind of tempered that out now with uh, having their way and doing some of their own thing. And this is uh, what he calls them to repent from. He said, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I'll come unto thee quickly and remove the candlestick out of its place. And there is no church in Ephesus today. Uh, they did not repent over a period of time and, and there is no longer a Christian uh, church in the city of Ephesus. So we need to see this as a literal church as in a literal city but we need to see it typifying uh, what was going to happen uh, during the first century and uh, the first 130 years 
uh, of the church. Historically, we can look back on it and see that's exactly what happened. In the early days, uh, they abandoned any uh, safeguards even for their own life that they might propagate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by the end uh, of, uh, by 160 A.D., that had really fallen away. And then he gives the admonition in verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then notice this, and we'll see it in each letters. To him that overcometh will I give. And in each of the letters there is going to be a different aspect of giving. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To understand what he means by overcoming, we would need to go into the epistle of 1 John. Uh, remember, uh, the writer, the, the human scribe of the book of Revelation is the apostle John. He's also writer of the epistle of 1 John. And in that epistle, he identifies uh, this sense of overcoming. And we need to go to the fifth chapter uh, that we might see that. So if you just turn with me to to 1 John chapter 5 for just a moment. Whosoever believeth, we'll begin with verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God uh, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the believer, the one who has received the Lord Jesus Christ as his prayer, is the overcomer. And the overcomer shall be given to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The second letter is addressed to the city of Smyrna, to the church at Smyrna. The word Smyrna is the name of a resin that was popular in the ancient world that was used to develop the costly perfume of myrrh from. When, when this resin called Smyrna was crushed, it released its fragrance. That's one of the gifts that was brought to the Christ child by the wise men. Gold, uh, silver, gold, silver, and myrrh? Gold, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It wasn't silver. Where would we get silver in there? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A very costly fragrance that could only be released by the crushing of the resin of Smyrna. Smyrna, then, was a literal city. It was just to the north of the city of Ephesus and was noted as being a city from which this uh, costly fragrance uh, generated. This church, however, represents not only that, that period uh, or those people that were there in that community, but represents the church from 160 A.D. to 312 A.D., for that's the period of time in which the, the church was crushed, was persecuted. And out of that crushing, out of that persecution, 
came a tremendous sweet aroma of service and commitment and zeal and evangelism and missionary uh, enterprise and spiritual growth in those years. Follow then as I read that letter, beginning then at verse 8 of chapter 2. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear not of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou, for, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Second death is identified later on in the book of Revelation as being cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and tormented forever. So the overcomer will not be hurt by the second death. The church at Smyrna represents then historically, uh, from our viewpoint, prophetically from the Apostle John's viewpoint, that period of church history from 160 A.D. to 312 A.D., and he identifies their period of suffering as ten days. This term ten days is used figuratively here, uh, not literally. It was not ten literal 24-hour days, but ten periods of time under ten Roman emperors. Historically, we can go back and look at it. it was the persecution of the church was under ten Roman emperors as they brought affliction and persecution. There was poverty, he says, because their property was confiscated. If they were Christians, their property was confiscated. Uh, their goods were taken away from many of them, and they were beaten, they were martyred, many of them uh, put to death, others of them suffering tremendous affliction uh, as a result of their uh, life and witness for Christ. And out of that type of persecution came a return to that first love. Came a tremendous response, growth, uh, and development, and a worldwide missionary enterprise uh, developed uh, during this particular period of time. It uh, one of the focal uh, points uh, of sending out missions, uh, missionaries, and doing mission work was out of China during the second century. A tremendous revival that swept through China uh, during that period of time, and one that that went around uh, the known world that day as a result of persecution. Seems like so many times uh, we, we do not cherish the rights and uh, the privileges that we have until they're threatened or until they're taken away. And out of that kind of persecution and affliction came a tremendous sweet aroma of service and commitment and evangelism uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and look back upon it historically. We stop that at 312 A.D. because the 11th Roman emperor was named Constantine. He did not persecute the church, but rather he embraced outwardly Christianity. 
And when we get to the next church, we'll see what happens as a result of that. But let's go back in the second letter for just a moment and look at a couple of the things that are noted. First of all, in the identification of Christ, in this letter he is identified as the first and the last. In a time of persecution and affliction, it's sure comforting to know that God is eternal. And therefore his promises are eternal. They're not conditioned by time, but rather that he is the beginning and the ending and we can continue to rely and have faith upon him because of this. He is also that which was dead and is alive. Many Christians were being put to death, but Christ was put to death and came alive again and identified that he was the first fruits that slept and others, those who had overcome, would also live again. And so these two aspects of the description that was given in the first chapter are brought to this church because they are appropriate and helpful to them in that particular time of need uh, as they were being persecuted. Now he says, uh, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. He parenthesizes that. Uh, you're rich spiritually. You may have lost everything physically, but you're rich spiritually. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, not only, not only was the Roman church involved in persecuting them, but Jews were involved in persecuting them. And they are identified here as being blasphemous for claiming to be Jews in the true sense because they were not the spiritual descendants of Abraham, but were rather simply the physical descendants. He admonishes the church to have no fear for the things that they were going to suffer and identifies that the devil is going to cast some of them into prison and uh, they may be tried and uh, but that tribulation has an appointed time of ending and it will end. It's a period of ten days, uh, ten uh, periods of time under ten Roman emperors that they are going to suffer. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. The crown of life is not talking about eternal life. Crown of life, there, there are four different crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament that are Stephanos crowns rather than diadem crowns. A diadem is a crown that denotes position of authority or royalty. A Stephanos crown is a laurel wreath that is presented for achievement or award. And there are four crowns that the believer can uh, receive at the judgment seat of Christ, which I call the awards banquet in the sky, uh, when he comes and gets us at the rapture of the church. Four different uh, crowns that are available to us. The crown of, of, of life is identified here. The crown of joy, the crown of righteousness, uh, let me see if I can remember. Crown of joy, crown of righteousness, crown of... Hmm. Help me, Mrs. Welch. Glory. Glory. Am I missing one? Joy, life. righteousness, life, and glory. Thank you. Okay, that's... God gave me help. Me, to help me. The, uh, the crown of life is an award that is given on the basis of our learning to live what I identify as a faith rest life. 
learning to live a life that is dependent upon the promises and the provisions of God in our resting and relaxing in them and allowing His Spirit to work in us and produce uh, that inner peace and, and fullness in our life. And so it's on the basis of how we utilize the promises and provisions of God in, in resting in faith that will be the determinant factor. And here he says, He that overcometh under the midst of persecution, under the midst of affliction, what quality of life, spiritual life, do you have? And uh, he says, I will give unto thee the crown of life. Then he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. They may kill you, but the second death will have no hurt upon you. Uh, you will not be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The third letter begins with verse 12 of the second chapter. And it is addressed to the church at Pergamos. The word Pergamos means illicit marriage. Illicit marriage. And it is the church illicitly married to the Roman government. The church is spouse to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Constantine, when he embraced Christianity outwardly, joined the church and his government together and married the church illicitly to his government. And so the city of Pergamos was a literal city and its name meant illicit marriage. But prophetically, it spoke of that period of time that would begin in 312 A.D. and go to around 600 A.D. It is a... Uh, a period of time in which Constantine would begin that period of time by establishing himself as the head of the church and there would be tremendous changes that would come into the church uh, as a result of that. Constantine claims to have seen uh, a dream uh, and a cloud formation in the symbol of a cross when he was seeking some guidance for direction. And he interpreted that as meaning he needed to embrace Christianity and so he did, but he, he changed it to fit his lifestyle and his needs, and we find the church undergoing some tremendous changes during that period of time. Now the city of Pergamos, the literal city, in 96 AD, uh, is known as the capital of Messiah. It was a Roman province in the northwest uh, part of Asia Minor. Uh, it was the headquarters for uh, a group of... Uh, Magi's that were headquartered in Babylon, when they had been driven, driven out of Babylon, they went to the city of Pergamos to establish their headquarters. In the year 133 B.C., the king of Pergamos, a man by uh, the name of Attalus III, willed his kingdom. He willed his kingdom uh, and title into the hands of uh, of the Romans. His title was Chief Bridge Builder. Now, didn't mean he was an engineer. Now, the title meant the one who stands the gap between mortals and Satan and his hosts. In Latin, the title was Pontius Maximus. And uh, we've heard that term in history. And so there, the problems that related to the church at Pergamos uh, all 
were, were real at that particular period of time, but they went beyond that prophetically and they spoke of that period of history that is identified then from about 312 to around 600 uh, when the Roman government took over the church. And uh, we had this illicit wedding or marriage between the government uh, and the church. Into this church then, right into the angel of the church at Pergamos, this thing saith, He that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Sharp sword with two edges is identified as that revelation of the Logos, the, the uh, Word of God as it comes out. And there was a tremendous departure from the Word of God at that marriage of the, of the church, the Roman government. And so uh, Christ is identified as having the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest and where Satan's seat is and how thou uh, holdest fast my name and not denied my faith even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you and where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also... Uh, them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against thee with, with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give thee of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The city of Pergamos, remember, was where the, we, we find the bridge builder having his headquarters, the one who spanned the gap between mortal men and Satan. And so the Lord identifies this as where Satan's seat is. But he also identifies this as the development of the papacy uh, and the Roman uh, influence uh, prophetically into the church. He talks about some, some commendation about some of the fine things that were, were taking place. Uh, but he says that the, the major problem that they have is one of the doctrine of Balaam. This is based upon one of the most these Mr. Ed where we have the talking horse, uh, in the book of Numbers we had a talking she-ass. Uh, it was when the children of Israel were moving uh, into the land of Moab and of Midian, the king of Moab, Balak, uh, knew a prophet by the name of Balaam, a man of God, who had tremendous powers with God. And when he saw this great horde of people coming into his land, he sent some of his messengers and a uh, very uh, worthy uh, reward to Balaam if he would come up uh, to uh, Peor there and if he would curse these people that were coming into his land. For Balak said, I have observed whoever you curse is cursed and whoever you bless and so I've got a big reward for you if you just come up here and curse these people. Well, Balaam, being the man of God that he was, said, I can't do anything that the Lord won't allow me to do, so 
you men spend the night and I'll talk with the Lord and see what He's got to say about it. And if He were to give me His whole kingdom, I couldn't go if the Lord says don't go. So I'll give you my answer in the morning. So he talked to the Lord about it and the Lord said, No, Balaam, these are my people. I'm bringing them into the land. Now Balaam was not among the Jews. He was a believer, but not among the Jews. Not from the descendants of Abraham. And so uh, the next morning, Balaam said, I'm sorry, the Lord has said I can't go and so I just won't be going back with you. Well, when the messengers got back to Balak, he wasn't too pleased with that, and so he raised the ante. He offered a blank check. Name what you will in my kingdom, and you can have it. And this time he sent some messengers that were of higher rank, some princes, and uh, some more, uh, some higher ranking messengers. They went to Balaam. They told Balaam the king's offer. And instead of Balaam remembering that God is immutable, that he is unchangeable, in sending them packing, he said, well, now, I can't do anything except the Lord wants me to do it, and so you men spend the night, and I'll go talk with the Lord and see what the Lord's got to say about it. Well, the Lord said, Balaam, if the men come calling for you in the night, then go with them, but only do and say what I tell you to do and say. Well, if you read the passage carefully, you'll find they didn't come calling for him. But he simply told them, I can go. Let's be on our way. And so they started off. He didn't have a Ford in that day. And in those days, the closest thing to it was a she-ass. He had had her a number of years and, uh, and rode her uh, everywhere he went. He got on her and they started off. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way with a drawn sword. And the preacher didn't see Joe with the drawn sword, but the she-ass did. And she ran against a, a wall and smashed the preacher's foot. He got angry and struck her, got her back in the way, and they went on down the road a ways further, and the angel of the Lord again stood in the way with a drawn sword. And uh, this time the she-ass ran out into a field. And Balaam struck her again and got her back in the road and went down the road further, and the angel of the Lord appeared in a place where there could be no turning to the right or to the left in a narrow place and the she-ass just fell down and Balaam struck her again and then something unusual happened the Lord opened the mouth of the ass and she spoke and she said to Balaam oh, why have you struck me these three times haven't I been your ass all these years and been faithful to you I don't know about you but I believe if the thing started talking to me I'd think something different was occurring uh, might not but he carried on a conversation with her he said well sure I've struck you you've run into the wall you've run out in the field you've fallen down under. if I had a sword in my hand I'd kill you then the Lord opened his eyes and he saw a sword in the hand of the angel of the Lord that was trying to stop him and so he jumped off the fallen ass and hightailed it back home just as fast as he could and said, God, if you want to talk to me about this, I'm back home. No, that's not what he did. He said, oh, and you have to read it in the Hebrew to get the tongue. He said, oh, did you not want me to go, Lord? Well, if you want me to, I'll go back. Lord said, no, you've made up your mind to go. Go ahead. But you only say and you only do what I tell you to do or tell you to say. So Balaam went on. 
when they got there, Balak took him upon a high place. And he said, I want you to look out. There's a great host of people coming into my land and I want you to curse them. Balaam can't do anything without talking to the Lord about it. Now what you need to do is build seven altars and offer seven bullocks. Now here is a prophet of God telling pagans to build altars to Jehovah God and offer bullocks to God while he goes and talks with God about it. So they offered the sacrifices and Balaam talked to God and God said, don't curse them, bless them. So he came back and he pronounced a blessing on the children of Israel. Well, that certainly didn't please Balaam too much and so he said, maybe if you look at it from a different perspective. So he took him over to Mount Peor and he said, now from this vantage point, see those people? I want you to curse them for me. He said, can't do anything without talking to the Lord about it. How long do we need to talk to God about something? When God's given us an order or instruction, we ought to be able to follow that. So many times we've got to go see if God changed his mind. So he said, you build seven altars, you offer seven bullets, I'll go talk to the Lord. And the Lord said, don't curse them, bless them. So Balaam went back and pronounced a blessing on them. Balaam was upset again, took him to Mount Pistia. said, look at it from here, and I want you to curse them for me. Well, the preacher had finally wised up. He didn't need to offer any sacrifices or go pray. He just pronounced a blessing on the children of Israel and went back home. So it seems like he finally learned his lesson. When we get over about the 31st chapter of Numbers, we find that God had avenged the Israelites against the Midianites and the Moabites and all those, and it lists five kings that had fallen on the battlefield, and with the kings was this preacher, Balaam. It looked like the story had ended well, and he'd gone back home, and everything was all right, but now he was dead as an enemy of God. To really get, to understand all that, you've got to get into uh, the book of Jude and some other uh, epistles of Peter and, and some of these things to put together what was being said. And what happened, Balaam said, I couldn't curse them, God wouldn't let me, but now let me tell you what you can do. All right, check looked pretty good. I can set it up so that that they'll be destroyed. Now, their God is a jealous God. You worship Baal, and which was a fertility, sexually oriented religion. So if you'll send your good-looking young ladies down to their camp and have them seduce the young men into their, into their worship of Baal, you won't have to lift a finger. Their God will kill them themselves. So Balak did that. And they did seduce many of the young men. And God did kill, one night God killed 24,000 of his own people because they were involved in this seduction. And when God got his own house clean, then he went and cleaned their house and the preacher went down with them. So the, the doctrine of Balaam is essentially a doctrine of compromise of mixing that, that pagan in. And that's what happened in the church at Pergamos from, from 312 A.D. to 600 A.D. They had the, the bringing in of paganism and of compromise into the church. Tremendous years of compromise.
in the church. Well, when we move to the next letter, it's addressed to the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira. And uh, it begins then in verse 18 of chapter 2. If I don't keep taking these, don't quit taking these side trips, we won't get through this. Under the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes to a flame of fire. Remember, fire is a symbol of judgment. And his feet like a defined brass. Remember, brass, this is literally bronze, is a symbol of, of judgment. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first works twice, and the last works to be more than the first works. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh keepeth my works unto the end. To him will I give power over the nations. Literally authority over nations. Administrative rule. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers. Even as I received of my father. And I will give unto him the morning star. He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith. Unto the churches. The word Thyatira means continual sacrifice. When Jesus Christ died on the Roman cross, it was a once and for all sacrifice. He paid for our sins, past, present, and future. But as a result of the marriage of the Roman to the church of the living God, there was brought into the church many false doctrines, and one of them is identified here in Thyatira as a continual sacrifice. A system of penance, a system of works was brought into the church so that grace was perverted and the gospel message of the church in that day was a message of salvation by keeping sacraments and works by doing penance. In other words, by making continual sacrifice. It represents the church then from that period of time of, of 600 A.D. to about 1516 A.D. The city of Thyatira uh, was 40 miles south of Pergamos and if we've been following these we've made a loop, an arch and we're headed back down south now in geographical order. And it was noted for the purple dye that uh, was produced in Thyatira, the purple dye for the robes 
of royalty. It presents the church of the Dark Ages in which, as we've said, God's grace had been set aside for a system of penance, of sacraments, and of works. The church, in fact, denied the complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ and required continual sacrifice on the part of the individuals. It was during this particular period of church history that Mary was elevated to a position above the Lord Jesus Christ. It was reasoned, you'll see, if she was the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ and if the Lord Jesus Christ was God, she was the mother of God, therefore being the the giver of life to God, she was above God. And so she was elevated to that position. During this period of time, that tremendous uh, false things were brought into during this period of time that the shroud was discovered as well. I don't know if you've ever done any investigation into the shroud uh, that the Catholic Church has the claim was the burial shroud of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Spent some time at Brookings Institute where uh, they had done the work of evaluating that and uh, modern science has not been able to reproduce what was done uh, in that shroud. Uh, it is either authentic or the greatest counterfeit that has ever been produced. Uh, my estimation is the greatest counterfeit that has ever been produced. Uh, but the, it was during this time that all sorts of things developed. Uh, new books were written. Gospels, the Gospel according to Mary, and some of those all appeared uh, during this period of time. Uh, a tremendous of tr- a time of uh, tremendous departure from the faith and from the doctrine of grace. And of course cultivates in 1517 A.D. when Martin Luther, uh, a priest in that church, uh, had gotten sidetracked and started reading his Bible and found out that what was going on in the church uh, was not what ought to be going on. It was not compatible with what was in the Bible. He was a German. And uh, so he wrote a thesis of 99 points and nailed it to the door of the uh, cathedral and as a result was excommunicated and we have the Reformation beginning uh, out from that. During that period of time all the apostasy and things that was developed. The references that are made here and, and we time doesn't allow for us to take part and do this word by word to look at all the, the symbolisms that are given and I'm going to uh, later on give you a list of symbols uh, and definitions that will uh, contain uh, the things that are listed here. But just look with me again at this letter to uh, this church at some of the things uh, that were uh, going on. Uh, notice in the description of Jesus that flames of uh, f- eyes likened the flame of the fire and feet like a fine bronze identifying his judging of the church during this period of time. His emphasis upon works, and the works being greater than anything else they had going for them. That system of sacrifice, of earning our salvation uh, by sacraments and by uh, works or penance. The accusations are brought against a woman identified as Jezebel, and that's symbolically reference of, of the apostate church that is seen later on in the book of Revelation and identified as the great whore 
uh, as we'll move into the tribulational period, the false church uh, that had departed from the the premise of grace and uh, got the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ had established uh, in His ministry upon the earth. Talks about the time uh, that He gave there to repent, and she would not, but continued in her fornications, and and uh, talks about her children being killed. Talks about her going into the tribulation. And that church, the apostate church, will go into the tribulation uh, as we're going to uh, observe a little later. Uh, there will be a, uh, it'll be a time of ecumenical revival and a one world church uh, that will develop out of the Roman church uh, that has already been established. And so she will go into the tribulational period. Others will not, though, that, that are faithful believers, those who have overcome, uh, will not go into that tribulational period. Right, then we move to the third chapter. And in the third chapter, we uh, are introduced to the church at Sardis. The word Sardis <coughs> means escaping ones are called out remnant. Both of those definitions are found of the word Sardis. They it refers to that period of reformation in the church that was initiated by Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis uh, to the uh, door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther never had any intention of beginning a, a, uh, a different uh, denomination. He wanted to bring about a a return to the principles of grace, but of course he was excommunicated from the church, and uh, as a result of that we have the period of Reformation. It began in 1517 A.D., and uh, uh, that period of time uh, represented by the church at Sardis covers up to roughly around 1750 A.D. The city of Sardis, at the time in which uh, this was written, was 30 miles south of Thyatira, and was surrounded by geographical barriers which, which had caused the people that lived there to become overconfident and, a, and apathetic about the provision and protection that they had. Uh, it, in, in uh, application, helps us understand a bit about the church during that period of time of becoming complacent. This is the church uh, uh, then that has, had come out of the Dark Ages and uh, as a result of, of Martin Luther's discovery of, of the doctrine of grace again in the scripture and of perpetuating it, uh, we are introduced then to the church at Sardis. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. These again are the seven attributes that we've identified earlier. The seven stars, these are the seven angels of the churches. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works uh, perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. These are, this is the remnant. 
He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so the the universal church has in it a remnant, escaping ones that come out uh, that have not defiled their garments and uh, they shall be clothed in white raiment which represents righteousness will not blot their name out of the book of life. Another little rabbit kick out of the bush. Uh, I grew up my childhood and early youth believing that when we received Jesus Christ as personal Savior, it was at that moment that our name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't know if you did. Uh, we're introduced to that thought too. Matter of fact, there's one of our songs that we used to sing, is your name written there in the page right in there in the Book of God's Kingdom is your name written there. Reference to the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and the idea that at salvation our name was written in. However, a study, uh, extensive study of that has helped me understand that that's not the case. The names of every human being uh, that would ever live upon the face of the earth was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the earth was formed, before Adam was ever created. God wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, the language that is used in the writing tells us it was written in eternity past. And so we know then that, that that was true. Some names are blotted out of the book. Well, as I study the Word of God, I... there is no shadow of doubt that the life that we receive is eternal and we are eternally secure in Christ as a result of our personal faith in Him in a moment of time. There are two different tenses in the Greek language that are used in reference to salvation. There is the perfect tense which is a completed act in past time with the result continuing forever. Some of the passages that talk about our salvation talk about it in the perfect tense. That at the moment of our faith in Jesus Christ, that moment in time, uh, our salvation was completed with the result continuing forever. Uh, John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believeth is perfect tense. In that, that moment of belief, in that simple act of faith dependency upon Him, that you are saved completely with the result that you stay saved forever. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are you saved is the aorist tense. It's a particular type of aorist tense in the Koine Greek, which meant a point of time, divorced from time, taken out of time, and perpetuated forever. The moment you received the Lord Jesus Christ as personal, so that moment of time was divorced from time, it was taken out of time, it was perpetuated forever, it's irrevocable, it cannot be changed. And every passage of Scripture that deals with salvation is one of those two tenses. Again and again, there are approach after approach that show us our salvation is secure. And so if we, if our name was written in Lamb's Book of Life, no names could be blotted out, and yet we find that some names are blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. And so it, my, my studies help me understand, and I have a written study on that. If some of you would, would like to have that, I'll get some copy. Uh, that those names that are going to be blotted out are those who have never received the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so he says here to the church, those that are those escaping ones, those that are the faithful, those that are the overcomers that are in that church, not all believers in that church, but those that are, he will not blot their name out of the book of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then we move at verse 7 to the church at Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia is made up of two words, phylos or phileo, that word for responsive love, and adelphos, brother, and so it means brotherly love. It represents the church from about 1730 to, and I place this age around 1850, uh, 1950, in which we moved out of the Philadelphian age of the church. The brotherly love of the church, a time of revival and evangelism, tremendous growth, and return to the things of God in the Philadelphian age. The city of Philadelphia in 96 AD, when John was writing, was 30 miles south of Sardis. It was subject to earthquakes. There's a city that is there now that is named Al-Shaher, and it means city of God. And there's Christian church still in that area, in that city. That was, was Philadelphia, now it's called City of God. The representation of this church is given to us beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, literally trial, which shall come upon the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go, in, shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Representing then that period of, of church history uh, of tremendous worldwide revival and evangelism of missionary enterprise and of growth that went faster downhill uh, in the uh, early 20th century and by 1950 seems to have ceased. It is at that point that we introduce the church of Laodicea. It begins in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, but be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And know it thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and will sup with him and he with me. He that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my Father in his throne. He that can hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The word Laodicea, compound of two words, laos, meaning people, Laodicea meaning government. It's a time when the people become the government of the church. When the people govern the church rather than allowing God to have his place of authority, Christ to have his place as the head of the church. It's a time when we have preachers that have itching ears that are willing to preach what the people demand, what the people want to hear instead of God's message. And it appears to me that we moved into that period of time about 1950 and have increasingly uh, moved in that direction so that today the authority of the Bible, uh, the authority of the, of the leadership, the elders and, and the uh, pastors of the churches have, have for many, many parts been totally destroyed and are being destroyed in, in many other groups of people uh, increasingly. letter appeared in the uh, state paper of the Southern Baptist Convention, which I have spent the majority of my uh, ministry in a few months ago, uh, suggesting that we needed to do away with the position of pastor in the church. That, that seem, seems to be a, a point of contention uh, Southern Baptists have 5,000 pastors a year in the United States terminated forcibly by their congregations right now. Uh, as within that denomination framework that I've been working in, that I, uh, that I have seen this very thing of, of rejection of authority and leadership within the church and a desire to move into uh, human philosophy the, the religion of today is, is secular humanism. And uh, that has made tremendous inroads into the church. And I see us as living in the age of the Laodiceans. Uh, the age began roughly, I believe, around 1950. It's going to end at the rapture of the church. The church is called up out of the earth. Uh, when that is going to occur, I can't tell you. But the stage is set for it to occur at any moment. And when we get to the fourth chapter of Revelation, we'll see that the church is no longer in the earth. The church, in the beginning of the fourth chapter, the church is called up out of the earth and is seen in heaven from that time on. And so when when the church is completed the Laodicean period of time, then it will be taken up. Now, I regret that we've just had to hurry over some of these spots. I'd like to have taken each one of these uh, 
letters and looked at it, a statement in it and analyzed them, but time doesn't allow in our study here to do that. Uh, remember then that they present a picture of problems in the church, a local church in 96 AD, but prophetically they speak then of this panoramic view of the history from John's vantage point until the rapture of the church. Questions? Lots of them. This is saying then that democracy is not biblical. Well, democracy itself is uh, the most equitable form of government that we can have, but certainly uh, with with the rights that we have, and it's not this is not talking about nations being governed by democracy, but it's talking about the church. And when people start governing the church, rather than Christ being the head of the church and working through the roles of authority and administration in the church, then apostasy creeps in. Uh, it's not a criticism against democracy of government, but against democracy uh, in the religious sense of the people determining what uh, the church will believe and what the church will teach and what the church will preach or proclaim. So it's not a criticism against democracy and government. But of course, when we look at God's form of government, it's a theocracy. It's a nation without a king that functions under him. Covenant that he set up with Israel. But Israel couldn't tolerate that very long. They wanted a king like other nations too and uh, rejected it. Well, democracy is a government by the people. Yes. And therefore, yeah. I see it not being biblical. That's why I'm comfortable. Okay. If the people are biblically based, then it could work fine. But if they're not, then it, then it can about America being a Christian nation being founded on Christian principles it, it no doubt was founded on Christian principles and not necessarily founded by Christians uh, George Washington was not a professing Christian he was a deist and uh, Thomas Jefferson was not a professing Christian uh, they, were, they were men who believed in a supreme being and in God but not from the Christian approach uh, in a democracy the, this government was formed so that we might worship God according to the dictates of our own heart we as Christians are even out of line and we start trying to force the pens to practice what we believe. <laughs> so we, we, we can uh, violate governmental principles from either direction. But the, the emphasis of this passage is upon the church itself. Okay, anyone else with another comment or observation? this is what's happening within the Baptist church now? With the, uh, I, think it's, I think it's pretty complete in the Baptist church now. Uh, I think it's happening in the universal church. Uh, I've been closely, more closely involved in the Baptist movement. Well, certainly that would tie in with the success of the charismatic churches at this point. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Anyone else? Troy, bless you. Turned over you. Knowledge and information that you brought tonight. Walk away from your richer in every way. Well, before.
before we depart that I'm sure that there are a number of people that we should pray for tonight. I know that we should keep Ken Lennon and his family in prayer for the tragic loss of Gene. I think we should keep Ronnie 